Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Love Service Wisdom with Marissa Rada, or you can just call me Rada. I'm trying to make that transition a little bit more. I love it when people call me Rada, it feels really good. But as you can imagine, it's a little bit of a upward hill battle to change your first name. It's hard enough changing your last name, and I'm changing my last name was a difficult process for me. I, I my last my maiden last name is Smith, Marissa Smith. That's how I grew up, and I remember as a child not I couldn't wait until I got married. One just so that I could change my last name and have something more exotic or exciting than Smith. So I got Wepner and I was had such a difficult time changing my last name that I moved Smith to my middle name, which probably wasn't a very good idea because now all the documents that I do have Marissa Kathleen Smith as the middle name, Wepner as the last name. And now I'm adding in Rada, which is a whole other whole other complexity, but maybe just try calling me Rada. I'm trying it. I'm trying to say that and put that and use that name because like I said, it makes you feel really good. And I love the energy of it and I love um, the symbology of Rada as a devoted partner. So call me Rada. <sighs> Today's guest is Lauren Roche who is a meditation teacher, a legendary meditation teacher, a translator, an author. He is the translator of one of my most favorite texts ever, the Radiant Sutras. I discovered the Radiant Sutras, I don't know, maybe like five years ago now from the Kirtan singer, Dave Stringer. He was putting together like a a jam poetry music slam to this book And he gave me a copy and I instantly fell in love. And now I have like seven types, maybe that's an exaggeration, four different types of Radiant Sutras. Right now, when I look around in my little study, I can see three copies right now and they're all different. And it's the, it was the first book that I bought to sell through my boutique at the, at Sage. So I wanted other people to have it too. And when I got it, I gave it to like all my favorite people and said, you're going to love this book so much. It's, it's the subtitle is 112 Gateways to the Yoga of Wonder and Delight. And it's basically like the experience of life from a tantric worldview that is just fully loving and all embracing in all aspects of life. So I was a huge fan of this book and then looked up Lauren and his wife Camille and was a fangirl from afar and then happened to meet Lauren when I was working with 1440 and connected with him synchronistically in just such a beautiful way. And so now I've seen him a number of times here and there and around at Bhakti Fest or Sands. And just the other day I was sitting, it was Saturday, I was sitting on the side of the bed, putting my shoes on and my food was, my phone was on the nightstand and it's, my foot started ringing. Nobody calls me. You guys know not to call me. And it said Lauren Roche. And I'm like, what? I pick it up. He's like, I was just thinking about you. So I thought I'd call. I don't have any time, but I wanted to say hi. And so I said, I've been thinking about you too. Let's do a podcast. I want to get you on. And so here we are. This is my podcast with Lauren Roche, author of the Radiant Sutras, and here I'll read to you 
one of his favorite passages. Dana, my darling friend, and I, when we first met him, asked him what his favorite sutra was, and he said, number 26. Number 26 says, let's find it. The one who is at play everywhere says, there is a space in the heart where everything meets. Come here if you want to find me. Mind, senses, soul, eternity, all are here. Are you here? Enter the bowl of vastness that is the heart. Listen to the song that is always resonating. Give yourself to it with total abandon. Quiet ecstasy is here and a steady regal sense of resting in a perfect spot. You who are the embodiment of blessing, once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return. Again and again, answer the call and be saturated with knowing, I belong here. I am home. And with that, here is the wonderful Lauren Roche. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to my podcast. I'm so happy that you are joining me today for this conversation. Hey, Radha. Good to be engaged with you. Yeah, yeah. You're somebody that I just absolutely adore and I love your work so much. And so having gotten to know you and Camille these past couple years has been such a surprise treat for my life because I really look up to you and your work like incredibly. I remember the first time that I saw you and you might remember too, we were at 1440 and you were there yeah. for your Radiant Intimacy Weekend. And I was there with my good friend Dana and Susan and we were doing the 1440 Discovery Weekend. And we were sitting outside around the fire pit and it was Dana and Susan and myself. And you walked up and before I could stop myself, I said out loud, oh my God, it's Lauren Roche. I remember that was so much fun. <laughs> <clears throat> it was so much fun. There's not that many times that I recall that people just recognized me like that. And of course, every writer would love to have that happen. <laughs> right? Because you're not normally seeing your face, but um, that just goes to show what a fangirl I was before I met you in person, just leading up to that, because I knew exactly what you looked like and who you were. And then when you walked up, I couldn't believe it. To so much to the capacity that I couldn't not say that out loud. And then I was a little embarrassed, but I was also just giddy as well. You covered really well. That was <laughs> fun. And um, a shout out to 1440. These two people, Scott and Joni, built the yes. most beautiful facility to host workshops. And it's a couple miles inland from Santa Cruz, nestled in a mountain. And it's just a great, it's a great meeting place and a great facility for workshops. Yeah, it is. And it has those moments like I just shared where you're in it with the presenters and the participants. And you often have those crossing of paths in a, um, a beautiful way that feels really good. 
and Scott and Joni have just, just done the, the most fantastic job. I feel really fortunate to have worked for them with that year during that year that I did. And then the other thing that was going on there was at the brilliant sand conference, mm-hmm. Maurizio and Zaya conceived of this idea of having a whole weekend of different approaches to intimacy, the intersection of meditation practices and intimacy, which to me and to Camille, my partner, is the most exciting thing. How do we how do we use meditation practice to first of all be in love with the life force mm. and to accept the intensity of love that our own flow of prana shakti, I like to use the word prana shakti interchangeably with life force. Mm-hmm. Go back and forth because each each way of phrasing it brings out a different dimension. Yeah, there's life force and there's prana, which translates as life force, and then shakti, which is has more of a feminine twist to it, correct? The creative aspect. Shakti is is feminine, be yeah, in tonality, yeah, and in um, it's part of this genius series of insights about the interplay of masculine and feminine in creation, and um, for anybody that objects to gender language. Just translate that into your own favorite personal way. You could say they. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or maybe this just idea of opposites or polarities. Would that be helpful? Opposites or polarities. Yeah, Yeah. there is up and down, at least phenomenologically. There's gravity and levity. There's Mm -hmm. light and dark, just phenomenologically. Even Mm -hmm. though on reality we could conceive of different frameworks, intellectual frameworks. So anyway, back to Pranashakti, that there's this impetus and genius in life, that life itself is a spectacular unfolding genius of adaptation. And our human bodies and all their manifestations, our senses, our ability to think, our ability to make plans, our ability to have desires, our ability to notice that there's other people in the world and to form relationships with other people, our ability to be deeply moved, to be bonded, our ability to adore other people and and love them so much that we would do anything for them. These are all part of life's sacred gifts. And when we wake up in the morning, we all have a lot, a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. Because just to line up out of all possible things to do in a day and all possible things to pay attention to in a day, we... We are the artists of 
our own experience of our own day. We are. We get confused. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, waking up, what what do you do when you, upon rising, what do you do that helps you to remember that? Lately, I've been falling asleep into meditation and waking up into my favorite meditation. What does that look like? Well, it's, um, I'm multi-sensory, so I have, there's visual. With me, it's a sense of flame, Mm -hmm. a sense of what the sun is, and there's sound. There's the kind of roar of creation, the roar of Om. There's the symphony of Om. And there's sensation. There's bodily sensation of vibration. So are you describing when you're falling asleep, it's this awareness of flame and sun and the sound of Om or the roar of creation that's merging with sensation in your body that you're aware of simultaneously? So I meditated on what, what the hell are all these mantras and what the hell are all these different thousands and thousands and thousands of meditation practices that we have inherited because busy meditators have been writing notes about what they experienced for two and a half thousand years. When you so say busy meditators, inherited- does that mean they're doing it quickly or they've got multiple things going on at once? No, it meditators um, the, my role for Ed Mopin, he said once he said, for people that are always talking about how reality is ineffable, uh-huh, they've done a lot of writing about what it what meditation is. Ah, yes. The meditators over the past thousands of years, they've done a hell of a lot of writing. And by writing, it might be that they mentally composed a Sanskrit chant, which might just be half an hour or an hour of chanting. They composed it in their mind and memorized it and then taught it to people. And then hundreds of years later, it was written down. Right, which is how the, the Radiant Sutras came to be, correct? As far as we know, yeah, that's what it feels like. It was, mm-hmm. com- it was composed and then memorized and chanted, yeah. And then at some point, maybe 800 AD was written down. And the Buddhists had their own language, Pali. It's similar to Sanskrit. They had their own languages. Mm-hmm. And um, were really good at translation. They they had this epic of composing the text or recomposing it and translating it into the local language. Um, but anyway, the a text used to be something that you memorized, right? But memorized and, and chanted or written. There's the meat- Meaning, too, they would go into these meditative states and then the chanting would be their reporting back or describing what the state was like. It was their daily journal, in a way. 
or the distillation of their daily journal of what I experienced. And so we're geek. I'm sorry, we're, we're really <laughs> going down the rabbit hole. No, go for it. So over thousands of years, they've developed many thousands of very different approaches to meditation. And this is one of the things that's confusing about using the word meditation, that it means thousands of very different things. Saying the word meditation is like saying the word music. Yeah, I totally agree. It can be very confusing. Somebody just asked me yesterday, describe meditation. And it was hard to put it into just a couple words. It was more like I was navigating towards the feeling that I got when I meditate. Well, yeah, that's sensible. But it is like describing music. Mm-hmm. There's, there's everything from death metal to ambient music that you almost can't tell whether it's there or not and everywhere in between. And that's great. Every style of of music has its audience and its purpose and its effect on the body. And similarly, there's different types of food. Food could be anything from eating wild berries and leaves that you find if you're out in the forest and know how to browse in nature mm-hmm. to getting something from a a vending machine to some incredible concoction in a good restaurant or something mouthwatering and yummy that your friend makes. You're sitting inhaling, getting hungry and hungry. <laughs> We wait for the food to be served. So food is this vast range of meanings, and so does meditation. Precisely. That's a great description. Thank you for that, for breaking it down in a broader way. Because it does contain so many types. And even like your the book that you translated, The Radiant Sutras, it's 112 gateways into meditation or the yoga of wonder and delight, as you've described it. And a lot of them are less of, I think, what we think of as I'm sitting on my cushion and my eyes are closed and I'm going inward and I'm trying to silence. And it's more of I'm living in the world and I'm in awe of my sensory experience. Yes. Or I'm fully engaged in my sensory experience. And that is meditation. Yeah. It's a moment, a moment of meditation. And the... The Radiant Sutras and the the text that it's a version of, the, the Bhairava Tantra, is, it's so astonishing in that it honors all these little moments. It honors a moment if you're walking down the street and you see a friend, or if you come home and you see your dog, and that flash of recognition, that surge of love in your body, or when you taste delicious food, or you're listening to a piece of music and you just melt into it. It honors those everyday experiences mm-hmm. as much as anything. <clears throat> that it keeps saying, that's it. That's it. That's, that's it. it. Yeah, I love the translation that you have for even the Virana Bharava. Is that how you say it? Probably not. The terror 
and joy of realizing oneness with the soul. Yeah. Well, Bhairava is terrifying and also terrific and also benevolent. This is Sanskrit words um, often mean the whatever they're saying and then the opposite of that. It's a whole different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and um, Bhairava can be seen, sometimes the statues are very are like a fierce deity. And at the same time, Bhairava is that aspect of the divine that accepts our fear as the most sincere form of prayer. Hmm. Accepts our fear as the most sincere form of prayer. Yeah, when we're afraid, and in the text it uses things like running from battle or being on the edge of a cliff. Mm -hmm. And it suggests things like being in love, being afraid of whether the person likes us back or not. When we're afraid and we're we're vibrating with fear, right inside that fear is the divine. It's an astonishing thought that right inside your fear is a doorway, a portal to God. And that often is are those moments when that we that invokes prayer when we're like, whatever you need right now, God, I'll do it. Exactly, exactly. That's, and it's just pointing out that thing that we all know that when you're really, really afraid, right there you turn towards God. And even people who don't believe, yes, like they're. A famous old saying that there there are no atheists in a fox. <laughs> there are no atheists in a foxhole. Yeah, that's a soldier's thing. Yes, I was reading a, um, one of your sutras last night as I was going to bed, and I am just going to paraphrase, but it was something along the lines of it was about this fear state and how the divine has seen it all, anyways. Yeah, it's. Even the and the, even in those most terrible moments, it's like, yeah, that too. I've been there. Yeah, there's a place in us that knows. Now, one of the things that I'm always learning, mm-hmm. and that the text, when I say the text, it means the vinyana, Bhairava tantra, and it, it, the text is always referring to that. Everyone had already has meditated many times. Hmm. And that the real experts on meditation are actually out there all over the world in every field. The, the real experts on meditation are not people who call meditation teachers like me. Mm-hmm. Even though... Even though I've been studying and practicing and teaching and researching for 50 years. Would it be those who are fully in their craft or fully absorbed in their path? Yeah. yeah. And, <clears throat> and they might know two or three or four of the doorways and they're just working it. Mm. Like I meet people constantly. I see people 
in the world constantly and also animals that are so clearly better than me at what they're doing. And I, I can learn from them. Yes. And so in your, in your definition, those are meditators. And the yeah. way that they interact with life and life force energy. Yeah. I know singers that can walk out on stage and when they take a breath, they summon like 20 years of vocal training. And then they put their awareness like way down into their pelvis below the diaphragm. Really, they inhabit their body from bottom to top. And then they start to shape sound. And they breathe out and create these incredible sounds that fill a concert hall or a theater and you know make people pay Broadway show prices and go travel to New York to hear them. And they, they shape sound and they look at the audience and they shape their sound to the resonance of the room. And then they absorb the energy of the people loving that play, whatever it is, <clears throat> Hamilton or Les Mis or whatever the play is. And they're, they're shaping sound and feeling and surrendering to the music and to the lyrics and their place on the stage and the role that they're playing and coordinating with all of the other singers and actors and letting the audience feel. And they're doing all of this with split-second timing. And that's, that's yoga, if anything is yoga. That's a yoga. I mean, their knowledge of what breath is and how sounds reverberate in the body. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there's people that work with horses, that communicate with horses just with the tiny move of their hand or the softest touch. There are people that hold babies that walk dogs that paint that create music that compose music like all these people have their gateways into meditation yeah i love that you're saying that because i i know i've heard you describe meditation this way before in our different conversations and just through the conversations i've had recently with many students who asked me things like you know, what is your daily practice like? And I think they're maybe expecting me to say this many asanas or this much time on my mat and this long meditate. And I often reply, because it's true for me, is being in the world and who I am as a human and being a mother. And, and, and that's basically it in a lot of ways. I do different things throughout the day that are perhaps focusing my mind, particularly with mantra or chanting, or even just simple um, heart-centered awareness, but I don't, I don't feel called to separate myself to time on my cushion by myself over being a mom. Yeah, 
And and someday that might change. Yeah, when they're older and they're not here. When they're older, and then you'll have the giant empty nest syndrome. <laughs> Lauren, we're not talking about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's going to get here sooner than I realize. It's a time of profound transformation for women. It's amazing. Yeah. Happens when someone, a person who's given their whole energy all day, every day to loving these little bodies, when success, they get large enough and competent enough, they're like out the door, see a mom, don't call me, <laughs> don't know helicoptering. I'm, I'm going to go stay overnight with my friends, whatever. It's huge because you've been in training to love all day long every day. Yeah. And care for other people's bodies. And, and so when they're, they're gone, at least gone much of the time, it's an amazing transformation. Yeah. Um, create, it's a creative opportunity. Absolutely. And I can, I, I think I know that that's on the horizon. That's why in some ways it feels so important to me now to value the time that I have with them because it's, it'll be gone before I know it. Yeah. Well, the purpose of a sitting practice, what people think of as quote meditation, unquote, like where you sit somewhere and maybe close the door and close your eyes. The purpose of that and when it's worth it is if, say, you meditate for 20 minutes, it significantly enhances your ability to be with other people, including your kids. Yes. Boy, your senses are refreshed. Your heart is freer. Your body's rested and charged. And it's worth it to take yourself away. That's when meditation is worth it. And it can be worth it, but it's different for each of us. Absolutely. I know people that get more out of sitting for one minute and taking a breath than other people do for 45 minutes. I just, I just meet, I see people do this. Mm -hmm. They just will collect themselves and it's so informal. We don't call it meditation. It's an instinct. And do you feel like they have that ability because it's instinctual or they've practiced for a long time and they can drop into that space quicker or both? Yeah. Uh, um, it t- lovemaking takes everything that we know how to do in terms of bodily sensations, tracking the movement of bodily sensations, being in our heart, and adoring the other person and then sensing the way that they want to be adored. And then the second by second changes, like giving the other person space, letting them run away, letting them go jump in the ocean or take a walk or take a breather or back in the day, go have a cigarette and then come back. Mm. or jump up and both start dancing. And that's to say if you're doing that act consciously with full awareness. Mm -hmm. Each instinct 
like if we consider lovemaking or mating, mm-hmm. bonding and mating and flirting and romancing to be instinctive, each instinct can be sort of unconscious, can happen almost automatically, and it can also be universes of delight. Like the difference between picking up a guitar and just strumming it and hearing that it's out of key to being in the middle of a world-class concert where you're absolutely carried away by full-body sensations and communion. So each instinct is a doorway into meditation, making love, eating, breathing, bonding with other people, talking, communicating, running, sleeping. All of the instinctive behaviors are also doorways into meditation. Well, I know that's really refreshing for so many people to hear where they have maybe thought until this moment that meditating is something that they couldn't do or was too foreign for them or was from, was almost like religious, let's say, like I can't do that because it belongs to this culture. And for what you're saying, it is instinctual in the human experience and all of these varieties of experiences that you just described and more. Yeah, because meditation is instinctual and built in, it's built into the body. You can do it any way that you want. Now, also because meditation historically has been watched over, the knowledge has been de- developed and watched over by monks, we, we have this wealth of technolo- technology and at the same time, it's wrapped up and codified in religious language and language of detachment, which is beautiful into itself and highly appropriate for people who live up in the mountains in, in a religious order who may have taken a vow of celibacy, of poverty, and of total obedience and gone through a process of death of the ego and had their head shaved and gave away everything they own and took a vow to never again own anything, never love any person, never be touched. Just be completely detached and do what you're told. Follow the orders of your religious order. So these people, many of whom were spiritual geniuses, have given us this incandescent wealth of wisdom from the past. Our job in this time and place in the modern West is to go to the basic principles and reinvent, adapt, re-engineer meditation to be suitable for the practitioners, which is somewhere between 60 and 80% women and 
almost entirely relational women. So there's maybe 30% men, sometimes more, Mm -hmm. sometimes less. And almost everybody in the modern West who meditates has a job and friends and a home, which is very different than being homeless and celibate. Exactly, yeah. It's a different cultural context. And so, like you're saying, reworking or reinventing meditation for the modern human and women that are doing it. And this is... This is a historical revolution. There's no hint that any time in the past, and even in an imagined world, except for, um, was it Miss of Avalon? I mean, except for some. <laughs> it's a great book, by the way. Yeah. There's no real hint that at any time the majority of practitioners were women, women who live in the world and have kids. This is incredible. This is fantastic. I think it's the greatest thing ever Mm. that the yoga world and the meditation world are full of moms. I do. do. (laughs) Why do you think that's so fantastic? Well, I'll just tell you this true story. So it's it's 1970. I've come back from meditation teacher training. I'm 20. And I go over to visit a friend who is also came back from meditation teacher training. It's like the afternoon. I've gone over to visit him. It's like an hour drive. So it's like late afternoon. He goes over, I'm sitting at the kitchen counter. He goes over to the refrigerator, grabs himself a sandwich, sits there in front of me, eats a sandwich and drinks some water. And it doesn't offer me anything. I was just sitting there <laughs> hungry, but amused. <laughs> the, the meditation world, like in the early 70s, it was full of these overly spiritual men who um, have a very problematic relationship with the material world and with desires. Meaning what? Well, like we all had eating disorders. It was disguised as the yoga diet. It's oh. like we're all, there's a new term, orthorexia or yogorexia. Huh. We all have various forms of yogorexia, whereas we just, food was something that you worried about. All food had to be examined intellectually as whether in your really idiotic simplistic view of what a yoga diet is, is this food approved of. Wow. So we weren't, it, it was took years for me to recover from this. It was one of the worst things I've ever done was to start worrying about the purity of food according to my really stupid, my stupid conception. Yeah, you know, a similar thing happened to me when I started, when I became a yoga teacher in 2002, I first encountered raw foodists who were just eating raw food, and they convinced me for a while to do that too. And I actually enjoyed how I felt only eating raw food, especially when I lived in the tropics and it was easy to do that. But then simultaneously, I was 
noticing that now I was thinking about food all of the time and I was worried about food all of the time. And I even felt like, is this getting into some kind of weird disorder? I don't like this. And I totally stopped, mostly because I didn't like thinking about food. I didn't want it to become like a thing that was on my mind. Well, you recovered a lot quicker than I did. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, oh. I recovered pretty quickly. But it was weird. I didn't anticipate that as an, a result of trying to have this like healthy diet, right? But that then it became something that you were, yeah, became now, now it was an issue or it wasn't an issue before. Exactly. And worrying about, we all... We all worried about food all the time, and and um, we, I lived in Laguna Beach in Southern California, which is oddly like a hotbed of food neuroticism and food, insane food theories. Now, I have the kind of body where I could go to the beach, like in winter, when the ocean's quite chilly, like fifty-eight degrees. Um, I don't know exactly what that is in Celsius in the metric system. But pretty but, cool. Yeah. It, when you, it stops your, it feels, you feel like your heart is going to stop. Yes. First. And I could just go to the beach with like a backpack full of oranges, like eight or 10 oranges. And I could live all day just on oranges and swim miles in freezing water. And and be warm. I was fine. I was adapted to freezing cold. Hmm. And um, so be, because of that, though, um, I would get carried away. So after like years, I noticed, I, I think I demineralized my body by just eating too much raw, <laughs> raw fruit. Uh-huh. <laughs> And then Dude. you, and then you balanced it back out. Yeah, but it's we have instincts for what to eat, and one of the purposes of doing yoga and meditation is to be so attuned to your own body that you just instinctively know what to eat. Mm -hmm. Or you just go like people that are, I've noticed that are really healthy. They'll just go, you know, I want to eat a steak. Let's go eat a steak. Or I want to eat a salad or um, I'm going to eat some nuts. They just, they eat what they need. Yeah, it's like your body is instinctually telling you you can get this vitamin or mineral from yeah. this type of food and now I'm craving that type of food. Yeah, and you have to be well-tuned to begin with to yes. do that. But in my experience, all the opinions that we had, and I, Southern California, it's just sort of the it's a mania you know it just everybody has an, one <laughs> insane theory about food after the other and there's no common sense of course i'm just talking about my circles yeah and, and it sounds like you've been in that for 50 years you've been aware of the craziness of food which is also so strange because we live in a time in our culture and society where food is so abundant and prevalent and we've never had better food yeah it's and now crazy. we're the most obsessed and worried about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I'm always recovering <laughs> from Southern California insanity. <laughs> 
Well, you're choosing to live there. Well, I'd been living in Hawaii and, and the place where I was, the tap water was not drinkable. Like you could drink mm. a lot of water and still be thirsty because there was weird stuff in it from farming. There was a, a lot of, um, it's, there's a lot of chemicals in the water, probably from fertilizer runoff or something. So I got in the habit of drinking bottled water and going to a lot of trouble to always have bottled water. Then we moved back to Los Angeles. And so I started thinking, oh, well, the tap water is toxic. So I would get a jug and go refill it at those machines outside of the store. And then like after a year of this, I was at the gym. I used to work out. Joe Gold, the guy who started Gold's Gym, he had this gym called World Gym. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these 70 and 80-year-old bodybuilders that look fantastic. And they're just drinking from the fountain. And I started thinking, wait, wait a minute. Like, they're just drinking from the fountain. (laughs) They've been drinking tap water, LA tap water, since the 1930s. So it's like, I think there's something wrong with my theory. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's like, oh, my God, I had this fear of tap water. But Mm -hmm. the tap water here is great. And how fortunate are are we that that's true? It's not true everywhere, for sure. No, it's not. But But it's hard to know what to be afraid of. We really have to work track of what to be afraid of and and revise our fears as as appropriate. Mm. So now I have a filter. I have one of those companies that puts in those three, there's three filters in the tank. Yeah. So I just drink, we drink tap water that runs through these filters to take out maybe some chlorine. I and, thought the same thing. Yeah. And I, I shudder when I look at the number of water bottles that people use. I, you know, I shudder. It is heartbreaking. But everybody, you know, at a, at a mass level, people have been trained to be afraid of their tap water. So they're drinking old water out of some random plastic that probably is worse than tap water. I mean, they're drinking they're getting all these plastic molecules in their bodies. So, but bottled water is better than water that maybe has something, some weird stuff in it. So it takes work to know what to be afraid of. And um, one of the things, one of the most challenging phases of meditation is washing the fear out of your body. Yeah, we all have a certain amount of fear. They're just like fear of what's happening in the world, fear of climate change, uh, fear of, you know, random violence, fear of things happening, fear that we get from the news. I don't know, health fears. Um, what 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 are moms afraid of? Well, we're always afraid of our children dying. That's like the major one or getting sick or, yeah, that's interesting to think about washing the fears and meditation helps you to do that. Because I think I could observe that meditators, people that I think have had a a while practicing and are 
are in that groove, they seem like less fearful people. They seem like yes. more accepting people. They seem calmer. They seem more present. Yes. That it that is often very true, and it's a delicious benefit of meditation. And the way it happens is that what we're calling meditation, like in the formal, what we think of the formal sense, where you you sit somewhere and you give over twenty minutes to meditating, uh-huh. is that. You give yourself access to deep relaxation. And in that relaxed space, you welcome all your fears, all your emotions, all of your relationships, and you let them combine. You let the serenity of the meditative space permeate your fears. Let the fears talk to you and resolve themselves. So it's by entering the fears and welcoming them, they get access to all of your inner resources. So some fears you might act on, and others, when you welcome them, they might just be dispelled. Mm -hmm. I find too, sometimes when I'm sitting and practicing, the fears will arise as a way to, to distract my mind. That's the old way of thinking about things. Okay. Enliven yeah. me. Help this, me think. The language, the language distract my mind uh-huh. is everywhere in meditation. And it comes from the monastic tradition. For a monk, for someone who's taken a vow of celibacy, mm-hmm. you know, and they sworn to not have kids, monks couldn't have children. And they can't, above all, say if you're a Buddhist monk and you have to go through the village every day with a begging bowl and the housewives come out and and give you food, often, you know, they're on the edge of starvation, but they still would find some food to give to the monks. The monk can't have any flicker of lust like that monk, your monk cannot look at that beautiful housewife, the 20 year old housewife who's walked to the kitchen door and is offering some food. He can't have even a little flicker of, hey, you and me, babe, <laughs> let's sneak, sneak out into the woods. There can't be, it has to all be eradicated. Right, and the and the monastic tradition. So then, modernized, it would be let's say the lust arises and you go into it in your imagination, versus I shouldn't have it. Yeah, would be it's a distraction. Right. So for for a mom meditating, nothing is a distraction. She's just being tender towards all that's in her heart. Anything that arises is an opportunity for you to be a good friend to yourself. So first you listen to the worry, whatever the thought or the thought or the feeling. You welcome the sensation. And usually just by tending to something, it it'll dissolve a bit or it'll change into something else. Mm-hmm. Each each thought, each emotion enriches you. 
in a little bit. I love looking at it that way. It feels really refreshing to me. Instead of thinking, um, like my mind is trying to play a trick on me, right? And distract me from the object of meditation. Using that quote-unquote distraction or whatever's arising to be the just present moment gateway into feeling all sensations. Yeah. And the, the language, there's really no need to talk about the mind when you're meditating. I think it's a kind of a useless notion and, and a bad translation. What would you say? Uh, why not just talk about the images that you see in your mind, the conversation, the mental conversations, and the emotions and the sensations? Why, why say the mind? Everybody's using this word, mind this and mind that and mindfulness mm-hmm. um, and distraction. Let, let's, just, let's just throw away the whole, that whole language system. Okay. And just be immersed in experience. Now, we all need to sleep somehow. We all need to rest. Bodies human bodies, cats' bodies, dogs' bodies. need Bodies need a lot of rest. I mean, many hours a day of rest and repair and rejuvenation. So when we sleep, which could be four or five or six or seven or eight hours, whatever we get, mm-hmm. when we sleep, we rhythmically flow between deep sleep and dreaming and deep sleep and dreaming and deep sleep and dreaming. So bodies heal themselves and recharge through this rhythmic fluctuation of deep sleep and dreaming. So life is rhythm. Then we're, we wake up and maybe we're awake for 18 hours, 16, 17, 18 hours. And during the waking state, we also rhythmically fluctuate. Sometimes we're more energetic. We'll be more energetic for a couple hours. And then for maybe 20 minutes or half an hour, we we slow down. We want to take a break. Mm-hmm. Maybe day, we find ourselves looking out the window and daydreaming. And then we get back at it again. Well, there, so there's a rhythm to the waking state. Now, what these are three states of consciousness: the waking state, and deep sleep, and dreaming. Well, meditation for somebody that lives in the world and has a job, and people that they love, meditation is a combination of all of the states of consciousness. There's a little bit of sleepiness in it. It's a time to let go and rest. Sometimes meditation can feel like a nap or a cat nap. There's some dreaming in it where the brain is dreaming and daydreaming. And then there's these wonderful moments of great wakefulness where it's as if we really wake up. And in practice, when we're sitting there meditating, say that we're doing a 20-minute meditation, we'll fluctuate between all these tonalities continuously. So 
the the purpose of our meditation technique, whatever it is that we use as, um, let's say, the, let's put the word focus in quotes. Mm-hmm. The purpose, whether we're breathing or listening to a mantra inside or visualizing, the purpose of the meditation technique is to trigger this healing response where awareness has a chance to to be with the waking state, the dreaming state, and the deep sleep state, and to create a, a deeper integration of consciousness with itself. And you can feel this happening. You can... You can feel how wonderful it is when you get used to this. And after, afterwards, you'll find that you function better. Like when, and when you find the style of meditation that works for you, you'll notice it right away, that you actually function better in your daily life. And other people will often notice it also. But that in, in terms of the biology of meditation, it's a, a wakeful, we're mostly awake, sometimes extremely awake, state of restfulness. And it's a paradox because in labs, when we measure people doing an effortless meditation, the regular people go into a state of rest deeper than deep sleep in about five minutes. And they feel completely normal. They're just sitting there thinking om or thinking the word ocean or mm-hmm. thinking of their happy place or enjoying the flow of breathing. And the human body has this ability to rest more deeply than sleep very quickly. So it's very rejuvenating. I agree. I totally agree. That's absolutely my experience. And it feels like the balance point that we're needing in our modern lives are those moments of rest and relaxation and realignment and tuning in so that, like you said, we can function better. Yeah. And that's how you know that you're doing the right kind of meditation for your body and for your life. Uh That afterwards, you're functioning better. It's like you see the world more clearly, like colors might seem a little brighter and your physical body inside, you feel like you're more tuned for action. Mm -hmm. I've heard you say too, that you should use a form of meditation that you enjoy. Yeah. You want to stack the deck in your favor. Like since there's thousands of different techniques and even say, if you're going to do a mantra be with the mantra in meditation, there's the Hindu scriptures say that there's millions of different mantras and you may not want to use a Sanskrit mantra. Like in each tradition, in Islam, in Judaism, in Christianity, there's beautiful sounds for different aspects of the divine. So you you may want to use a sound. I don't want to really say, say them but I guess we could use Jesus. Jesus doesn't mind. Um, <laughs> he said it's okay. 
Well, he, you know, he hung out in bars, low life bars in Galilee. <laughs> in Galilee. He hung out with the regular people. Um, yeah, you could use Christian imagery or atheist imagery. And what the astrophysicists give us in their vast conception of the universe with the trillions of galaxies that are detectable through 46 billion light years of known universe, their conceptions can be used as mantras. Pick something that you love so much that you want to dissolve into it. That's mm. how you meditate is actually like very simple. You select an aspect of the universe or an aspect of the life force that you love so much that you're going, oh boy, I get to hang out with that for 20 minutes. That you love so much is like, oh, I want to melt into that. I want to, I want to drift away with that. I want to merge with that. You pick some aspect of life and then go ahead and be with it. Now, what gets the intricacy, the game on aspect is that it's a love relationship. And as we know from all of our relationships, the more you love somebody, the scarier it is. And the more intense the changes you go through in surrendering to that love. Loving anyone, a baby, another person, a dog, a horse, your garden, you're in for a wild ride. Mm. I mean, is, am I? <laughs> you're right. It's true. I'm right. <laughs> oh, bless me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sneezing isn't it incredible it feels good sneezing is one of the doorways <laughs> in the radiant sutras does it say that it does it, it, it sanskrit for sneeze is shoot it's like I, as i recall it's k-s-h-u-t shoot <laughs> <laughs> yeah sneezing ravenous with hunger Wild with desire. These are all doorways to touch this essence of life. Yeah. So the intensity of meditation is that it's a love relationship with the life force. And love is intense. We, in 15 seconds, you might go through a universe of, of experiences as you dissolve in love. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's the big secret of meditation. The big secret. It's a love relationship. It's a love relationship with life and yourself and others, the object of meditation. It feels good to think about it in that way that it can be something that you want to, to dissolve completely with. Because then, like you're pointing to, you do it and you enjoy it and it feels good and it brings you then also to that cusp of terror. Yeah. It's in life. Love is intrinsically terrifying. Yes, I have yeah. X minutes with this person 
I have X minutes or seconds with my kids before they run out the door to school. So the essence of meditation for someone who loves, someone with a job and friends, a home, is like, God, I have five minutes to myself before I have to hit the ground running, before I have to like make breakfast, talk with each of my kids, help them get tuned up for their day. Or in the afternoon, the same thing. Like the kids are coming home soon or I have to go pick them up. Mm-hmm. Then we have dinner, bang, 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 bang. Soccer practice, bang, 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 bang. I have five minutes. Like help me heal all the worries in my heart. Tune me up so that I can be better at love. So that I can make the most out of each moment. That's it. That's it. That's a gorgeous prayer. Yeah. And that all the tool, if you take that approach, all the tools of meditation and yoga are at your service. Thank you for that. Lauren, I feel like you're such a masterful teacher and you're so wise and you've been doing this for so long. We could talk for, for many, we could talk for hours and I know you, even longer than that. So I don't want to take too much of your time. I hope it's been useful. I feel like I've been rambling around. Oh, it's been incredibly useful. There's some super duper great, beautiful nuggets in there. And I've just enjoyed this time with you immensely. I look up to you so much and I really respect the work that you and Camille do together and who you are in the world and the teachers that you are, especially in helping us modernize um, these practices and helping them feel like they're us and they're accessible and, and we can enjoy it at the same time. It's just it delightful to to speak with you. You might mention there's Meditation Secrets for Women, which is Camille's yes. book, published yeah. by Harper. Where should they go to find information on you and Camille? Um, CamilleMaureen.com mm-hmm. is a great handy website. I'll put and, links to that. I'll put links to those too in the little yeah. info. Thank you, Radha. And I look forward to seeing you again. And call me anytime. I will. I will for sure. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. And we'll talk again soon. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye.